All right, welcome back to Unstandardized English. My name is JPB Gerald. Um, this is a podcast about white epistemology and racial-linguistic ideologies, and that rhymes, huh? Anyway, so uh, today we have an interesting topic. It's not specifically about language, but so much of this isn't really about language anymore, is it? Although everything is really about language when you think about it. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about early childhood education, something I don't know very much about from a, you know, researcher standpoint. Um, I, I come across it, but I, I, I don't know enough to say I have any expertise on it. So the person I'm bringing on, Elizabeth King, Dr. Elizabeth King, uh, who just got tenure, so good for her, um, is going to talk about that. But we're going to talk a little bit about some of the problems with BCE research and also some of the research that she has done on emotion language. So there's language. There's always language in there somewhere. Um, but basically, I'll let her explain that to you. And, and of course, we'll talk about the problems with academia in general because you can never stop talking about the problems with academia. Anyway, I also have to shout out a, uh, a new patron. That's Chris O'Donnell. Not the actor. Not Robin. He's one of the people who took my class a while back, and he became a patron. So uh, it is difficult for me not to make jokes when I talk to him about Gotham City, even though I'm the one who actually lives in Gotham. But yeah, thank you, Chris. If anybody else is interested in and able to contribute, um, the link will be in the show description. Anyway, so this week um, is, again, about early childhood education. And, you know, something that's becoming relevant to me because my child is soon going to have early childhood education, right? And a lot of the reason I do this podcast and I do the work that I do on whiteness and education is specifically so that he can have a safer experience psychologically than I did and that many kids do. So it's important. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about. I should note this episode is coming out on the second Monday in April. I have another episode that's scheduled for the end of April, and then one more for mid-May. Then I have what will now be a yearly episode with my wife, and then there's the season finale, um, which will be in uh, mid-June. And uh, so there's not that many episodes left. After this one, there's one, two, three, four more. So get your listens in. All right. So welcome to Unstandardized English, folks. You know that. I said that a minute ago in the introduction. Uh, my name is JPB Gerald. You also knew that. I'm here today with Associate Professor Elizabeth oh. King. Yes. Um, and we're going to get into some stuff about early childhood education, which I don't know anything about in terms of the scholarship, although it's something I have to pay attention to now with an early child. Um, so, Dr. King, if you would like to explain some of what you do, um, some of the stuff you've worked on, then we'll get into some of the discussion. Right. What is it that I do? Uh, so I am an assistant, nope, associate, come fall, associate professor of child and family development. So I focus on child development broadly, most specifically in early childhood education settings. So, you know, we can talk about early kids since you have one, 
Um, but I'm interested in like the tiny ones, like your age group, right? So infants, toddlers, preschool, kindergarten. Uh, and so I've done work that focuses mostly on how teachers use emotion or how teachers use language to talk about emotions with young children. And in some cases, how these are tied to like really problematic, terrible narratives about, um, about gender, for example, was my last paper. And so I've done a lot of work in terms of like the developmental aspects of language and how language is tied to thought. Um, but I've also looked more broadly at early childhood education um, in terms of like teacher compensation and teachers work environments and the ECE system from kind of a policy perspective too. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in the EC policy things because that's that's the kind of thing that's really different from state to state, you know? Um, yes. And even in California, even county to county. Yeah. Um, and like, I think about there's the, the universal 3K in my neighborhood is moving, to, not that far, but to a different part of the neighborhood, which will be farther for us to walk, but like people live there too. So, you know, we think <laughs> right. about like, how is that decision made? And my wife was going back and looking at like the news stories about when it was being constructed and being moved and, you know, thinking that like it is being moved to an area that has physically more people. So, okay. Sure. Okay. Numerically. Yeah. But, <laughs> but <who> uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. And where it is now, it's closer to like the subway, but where it's being moved to is closer to a more hermetically sealed part of the neighborhood. Now, again, the whole thing is in our, it's in our zip code. So like we can get there, but like it, it, it's, it's interesting to think about why these things move. Cause I don't, from what I understand there's nothing wrong with where it is. They just decided right. they're gonna move it over there, you know? And that's not a serious issue compared to, you know the, the way the teachers actually teach people. But, you know, that's one of those things where like that seems like nothing, like it's just like a rent thing, but it's like, no, it's the city that's moving it. So like, you know, right. why and is that's, this that's an effect of like the larger system issue too. So even if it feels like not a big thing to you in your life, it's, it's systemically an issue. And most parents when asked when they're making decisions about what kind of early childhood center they're going to send their kids to a lot of its proximity. It's just, if it's in the neighborhood and in addition, not just proximity, but like if it's in their neighborhood, meaning the teachers there are actually from that community too. Well, right, because that's that's one of the things, because like when I was growing up, I, I went to the, the preschool near what ended up being my lower school and middle school and high school. Right. So it wasn't anywhere. Well, I lived somewhat close there as a small child. But then when we when my mom got a house when I was five, we were pretty far from there. But because it was they wanted me to go to that same school, it was, it was sort of an aspirational place to go as a small child, you know, um, and that's the whole thing with different types of education is is this like being from the neighborhood is it because it's nearby but if it's, are you trying to get become a part of the neighborhood you know what i'm saying there's a lot of questions that go into all this stuff i mean even without even thinking about the money i mean i mean before you even think about that which is a whole separate issue um it's not separate but it's a whole another issue right it's, uh, it's a big it's a big ask <laughs> um because i think 
like you know because we don't even know what we're gonna i mean forget forget about threes one so like you know before we even get into to like what's gonna happen in a couple of years when he'll be sent to some sort of 3k like there's there's like what are we going to do once enough people are vaccinated that we could think about like well, we're gonna have somebody take care of him are we gonna you know we could there's day, the daycares are open but that stuff is like nine million dollars it's just like it's it's more expensive than college tuition in most states Right. And it, and, and it's, and it which goes, is another whole money thing. Why, you know, <laughs> right. I don't know what, what people really do. I mean, I don't, I mean, I know they just pay the money, but like, I, I it's, it's, um, there's more people with kids than there are spots in those daycares. So I'm just like, I don't know what these people actually do like this. There's, there's, I don't know what they do. Um, and of course the prices have gone up, the COVID restrictions and the spacing, um, which I understand, like, you want to pay the staff at the place, but the money's not usually really going to the staff. Like, if the staff was, like, rolling in it, if these were, like, like super wealthy, like, early childhood educators, then I wouldn't really have a problem with the price, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not like a public school um, where the city or the state or whatever is subsidizing, you know, is paying for the people's salary. It's, uh, like you were paying for the salary. Right. So, and I don't, and a lot of that money that you pay out of pocket does not go to the teachers. I mean, if you look up teacher wages, they're, they're inadequate. They're just being not compensated for the work that they're doing. And it is because of that lack of federal funding, which really is, I mean, stems from who's doing this work and if this work is respected, which is a whole gender and racial thing. Um, but that money that you're paying, that you're paying so much money out of pocket as parents, it doesn't even go, a lot of it doesn't go into the pockets of teachers. It's just really expensive to do infant, toddler, preschool care and education and do it well. And we have just a, a continuous sticker shock of what money is required to actually keep that system going. And it's much easier to say, well, these teachers, you know, they're women and, and, you know, they just love working with kids and it's not about the money. And it's, there's an assumption that early childhood teachers have, you know, rich husbands, which is like heteronormative and untrue and unfair. Right. But. Well, it's a very, it's similar to the whole thing with nonprofits in general. Right. You know, right. that this like, well, we're going to get a new entry level worker. So where are we going to advertise? Just on the normal places. But ultimately, when someone comes in, it's going to be someone who's comfortable. Like, I remember a conversation I had at my previous job where, um, so we got a grant that was a private grant um, for my department because it was the adult education language thing that I was the manager of. But I didn't have any employees. I was the manager of, of a bunch of volunteers. So, but then we got a grant. So I got promoted to more in charge of my department? I don't know. Um, but the point is we, we hired someone for my old role and I got promoted. So it was gonna be a full-time employee that I was managing. Um, and so we we're interviewing people. And um, this is Manhattan. Um, obviously one doesn't have to live in Manhattan. I didn't live in Manhattan at the time, but like, this is, you know, still in Manhattan. And like, we're paying them nothing um not like minimum wage but like not a lot of money and um we had some some people who called and passed the first round of interviews fine which obviously there's a whole issue with who sounds good on the phone but within this world um and there's people we're going to bring in for interview and this one lady um and they were all women uh you know was being interviewed and then she tells us that she actually has a, an offer for 
some other amount of money. Now that's not really the way to handle things in the first interview. Like this, like we like can talk, one. <laughs> like we can talk about what expectations of interviews are, but showing up to the interview and saying, actually, I have an offer for this much money when we didn't offer you anything yet. <laughs> like, like, you don't, she didn't even know what the offer was. So we didn't make her an offer. So like, that's, that's, it's not, it's not a great way to go about it. If she had asked us what the, what the salary was, and of course things should be posted publicly, but whatever. But within the realm of the conversation we were having, just randomly telling us that you have an offer for this much money, it's not gonna go well. Anyway, uh, so then she leaves. And then we were, I was talking about it with my boss and we were, I was like, well, what, can we match that? Like, like we didn't necessarily want to go with her because of the odd way she handled it because it was odd. But I bring all of this up to say that my boss said, um, look, tell her that she, you know, we're not, she's not telling me to tell her. She's like, we're going to tell her that she's, you know, this is the salary and she gets the chance to move to New York. She didn't live in New York, to move to New York and, and, and live here for that. And I'm just like, but, but the experience of living in New York is not good if you don't have any money. Or if you don't make enough to live in New York, you're right. setting her up for a terrible situation. I'm like, it's not, you know, being in New York is not, sights. <laughs> being in New York is not fun if you don't have any money. No. It's like, this is one of the things that I learned very quickly when I was like 21, because I grew up here and, you know, I had a comfortable life, but I didn't have my own money until I was like, you know, an adult, I had jobs, you know, and it was nice to have like summer jobs and I would have some spending money, but I couldn't really do anything to go to the bar. Right. Um, and then I graduated college and I didn't have a job and then I didn't have any money. And, uh, you know, like I realized that being 21 in New York where, you, where the bar is legal, but you can't afford it. It's is just <laughs> terrible. It's just terrible. I go in the bar and have like a soda. Cause I could have, cause I had like $3 and I was just like, this is not, this is not ideal. Um, so anyway, what, the, what she was being promised was, was not, was like, who wants this? Um, and I think right. about that. So I, would, I think about that as being the, the nonprofit just mindset. And I think it's very similar to ECE. Now I understand that it's not being decided on by some people. Like it's more of a policy than it is individuals making these decisions for ECE. But then you have this, like, you know, very nice young women thing right you know and uh it, it, a lot of the pressure is being put on them to take care of you know, the most vulnerable students there are um and because of that and then you get into this thing that, that where we talk about like problematizing in the sense of like we've just spent 10 minutes talking about these issues so how on earth are we going to point out that they do things wrong because <laughs> they're in a bad situation, you know? Okay, exactly. Because I grapple with that all the time that it's like, well, of course, everything is hard. Of, of course, you know, we're, we're getting it wrong because we're getting it wrong for you as a system. And, and even when I'm, if I'm problematizing early childhood education in its like one-to-one -one interactions on like the ground level of what teachers are doing with children, we obviously have to have to caveat that most of the people who are doing this work with our youngest learners and who are making the least amount of money for their jobs are 
like women who are black or women who are Latinx or women who are Asian. It's all a lot of like women of color who are doing this work too. Um, the nice white ladies usually go into older age groups and get paid more money. Not to say that the, the ECE field is not full of nice white ladies, right? But um, it's, but it's a funny- they usually get to be the directors. Yeah, and they move up and, and just like men in ECE. Oh my, if you get a man and it's, that's another interesting thing about the power differentials in ECE too. Cause if you get a man as a great kindergarten teacher he'll be an admin in a year. Like that'll, that'll just be his, his trajectory potentially. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's an odd space to be in where I want to problematize everything from curriculum to disciplinary practices. And I say it with that tone because you shouldn't be disciplining a toddler. It's a totally different game. Yeah. Um, everything from there all the way up the chain. And at some point it's like, you know, what's systemic, what's whiteness. I mean, everything is, is steeped in whiteness in this whole system anyway, but you, you can't, it's not as simple as problematizing like what teachers do because you have to consider the stressors that they're under in addition to considering what it is they're doing and what we should all be doing better with young children. I mean, that's the thing. That's that's the, the way the system is built, right? Because like they, the, the thing, the point that I made, I didn't get to make in the original article about the altruistic shield because the article was only two pages long, uh, is that that's not how long it was supposed to be, by the way, um, is because although I know it's, it's like a, a triple, it's like three layers. There's people in a bad situation, right, generally, um, materially, whatever. Um, so therefore, they believe that what their work is, is a sacrifice. And in some material ways, it is. Um, although the people who can afford to make this, my point is, I don't feel as though the people who are, you know, genuinely sacrificing like the women of color who tend to do this ECE that's not really who I'm talking about when I problematize a lot of stuff in the field not that they can't do things wrong because everybody mm -hmm. can do stuff wrong but like um you know it's the it's the because when people think of ECE like 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 think about it in their head that's not really who they're thinking about they're thinking about the nice white lady even though right. the people actually doing the work are not that. the same way when people think of a nurse a lot of the time they're not thinking of of the many nurses of color that there are right but they're generally thinking about the nice white nurse and so the people the, the white people who join the field often know that and they ride in on that wave uh and mm -hmm. that's what allows for the the belief of, the, of, of you know but they're not they're being harmed by the system but they're not being as harmed materially if only because of that's how the levels of oppression and so forth work so Absolutely. what that means to me and it's not just ECE, but this is the topic of discussion, is that like um, when you, like it's a bad situation, but people know that and therefore use that as the shield as I talk about. But then there's like, you, you bring in critiques um, and so on and people really get sort of stuck on and, and understandably so the fact that many of the people in the field are not the people that are upholding the system on purpose and so therefore the people you know the the, the ece teachers of color um 
will be shown to be the ones who are being harmed by certain aspects, which is true, but that we don't really think about like, cause, cause like the person I have spoken to you about, like she was the director of the like UC place that she mm -hmm. worked at. And I'm just like, you can't even show up to a meeting. Why are you in charge? Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's just, uh, she might listen to this, I don't care. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I really don't care. I do not care. Um, Good. So, you know, it's just like, um, I find it sort of who is being valued in UC, and it's not too different for the rest of society, but, mm -hmm. you know, it, we don't talk about that. We talk about, like, everything I read, and I haven't read as much about UC as you, obviously, but, like, everything I read about UC is mostly, like, how to, it's still how to fix the kids. You know yeah right which is enough yeah how to go in and i mean how to i mean you hear it with the achievement gap which then i've heard even you know people who get this talking about it as the opportunity gap which makes a little bit more sense to me but still to me doesn't hit the nail on the head of what it actually is but um you know the system of ece is a lot of times doing more harm than good it's trying to it's saying that it's not perpet it's trying to again, fix these things, fix kids, help kids in these situations where it's actually just perpetuating, perpetuating the whole thing, starting from like age zero, you know, from six weeks old. Yeah, it starts so early. Oh, I realized like we were debating when to do it and we were gonna come up with this very complicated plan for what week to send them because we wouldn't have had much of a choice and then all this happened, obviously. Um, and because, you know, it was going to be something like she was going to take 16 weeks and then we were going to put and then I was going to like one day a week. And then this it was very complicated. And eventually it's going to be complicated anyway, although we're likely to hire a person anyway, um, part of the time. Um, but like it's 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 um, it's interesting having watched him grow. It's like a kid at six weeks, he can't do anything. He's just this little blob. I mean, you know, like, like, like he, he, he's he'd be surprised. <laughs> but I'm just saying, in terms of like educate, like, like, like we were his educators, you know, and and I understand why it happens because of the the demands of, of, of capitalistic, you know, labor and all that. But like, like the kids, the kid at six, like he can't. He's just he's just there. Like, well, you couldn't, so you, you couldn't even turn over. <laughs> what? Well, see, that's education, learning how to hold up your head. I mean, it's it's also, what do we view as education? And this, right. this is half a question to you and half a, I guess it's one of those half a question, half a comment things, the terrible things that academics have done. I don't even do those, but here I am. But I feel like it, it's, it's a question of what we view as education. See, to me, like if I'm thinking about a, a six week old learning how to hold his head up and doing tummy time, that's education. You know, it, it's every single moment with a child is education. It might not be in that like, you know, K through 12 system of what we think of as education and what learning is, but that's kind of part of the problem that if we don't focus on the younger age groups as being educated. Like if we don't call them early childhood education settings and things like that, then it's like, well, they're not learning. They're not learning yet until we get to K through 12. I mean, that's true because like the concept of what school, I mean, even the fact that it's called preschool. 
right? It's <laughs> I know. Be before there, yeah. it's not school, right? Um, so you're going to should have, anything be school? Shouldn't well, it all I'm, be this experiential, saying, right? <laughs> because you're saying like at this point you're going to get to play and nap and be treated like a whole person, and then at some point you got to go sit there. Um, and you know, sometimes I toy with like these these like radical ideas, like I'm just going to not do it. I'm not going to do it, man. And I'm just like I do not have the energy to plan that yep. <laughs> like that's the thing you can't like that's that's really what stops you is you're just like I'm gonna try and do everything myself and I'm gonna plan this and I'm gonna do a separate thing it's like yeah but I have to work um so right. I can't you have your own yeah. do that um and so it's more about mitigating the potential harm of the systems that's why all the stuff I do is to try to mitigate the harm visited upon them psychologically um and like I uh, I don't know why. Well, because I started, I'm obviously I started my program before he existed or, and was even thought of existing. Like we knew it would have some point, or we hoped it would have at some point. But that wasn't the plan. It wasn't like on this date. You know, it wasn't like that. Some people, you know, get like that. They can know? do. Yeah, some folks. I've heard the stories of like the dissertation baby, and you schedule it for when you know when you after you defend, and then you take that summer before. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, Another whole thing. Right. <laughs> Well, of course, I'm not, I mean, she's not the one that was in school, so it was different. Right. Um, but like, I didn't, um, so anyway, like, you know, when I got in, I just got in and I was just going to do a thing and then that happened. And so it, 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 it really, it took on, I'm not sure what really took on the urgency for me. And I've said this to you and I've said this to people publicly, but I'm going to say it again, is like last summer when I, when, when you know, both these things were happening in May after George Floyd and, and then after Amy Cooper. It was really the Amy Cooper thing, not because the George Floyd thing wasn't horrifying, but because, you know, I'm, you know, admittedly, we're privileged, my family's privileged enough to not be in a situation where, unless I'm out driving, which I do very rarely, although, I mean, like, I spend more time moving the car for parking regulations than I do actually <laughs> driving the car. I hate it. I hate it. But um, we only got it because we couldn't go anywhere. But, um, you know, how do I stop Amy Cooper from being his teacher? Yeah. Like, how do I stop that? I'm not as, I'm not saying that I'm not worried about Derek Chauvin, but I also don't think I can stop Derek Chauvin. Right. Like that, which is a sad, sobering thing, but also like, I feel like if the cops don't come after us, there's not a whole I can do about it. Um, but like, how do I get to where someone like an Amy Cooper who was, let's be clear, nominally progressive, she's Canadian, uh, you know, is, is, is not someone he has to interact with directly, or if he does, has both the tools to deal with that, not, not the outburst and calling the cop, not, not even that, but the, how to recognize the disingenuousness that must have pervaded her life before that. Right, the subtleties of white right. woman energy that she had this whole right, time. Because you know that there's people who look at that and they're like, uh, okay, I can see her doing that, right? Mm -hmm. she, she, I'm sure she didn't do things like that because she was at the end of a rope and just couldn't hold it back anymore. But that's just because it was there. Right, and there she was on display. Right. That's right. her, that's been her, that's not new. Right, yeah. um, but... Uh, so I think about that and I, and, and, and I, you know, I was, you know, before he was born, I was thinking like, you know, 
I mean, you know, we, we can get into gender and identity at some other time in life. But aside from that, I knew he would be recognized as a black boy, right. black, black, multiracial, but like, the, you know, this stuff going on. And, and I said to myself, like, I don't know, man, this is going to be a thing. You know, how, how do I, how do I, how do I protect him? And I didn't know. And so I thought about that. And then all this stuff happened, obviously, last March. And then I was watching and that happened in May. And I was like, that's it. That's how I can try to protect him is try to do something about her or versions of her. Right. Um, and, and cause that's, this going to, that's going to be his teacher. You know, e- even if it's not his teacher, it might be the administrator at 3k. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's how do I, how, how do I stop the administrator from, from not literally calling the police, but assuming things about him. Right. Absolutely. Right. Cause you know, preschool suspensions exist and they're, clearly higher for black boys, three to five times higher, depending on the stat you look at. So yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, I mean, that's what I try to do with the students that I work with, because I mean, when I look out into my room of students, like my undergraduate students who are preparing to either be like K through 12 educators, potentially usually K through three infant toddler teachers, or maybe work in a hospital setting with young children, I look out on mostly a sea of white women. I mean, I'm in the in the Midwest. I never thought I'd be in the Midwest, but um, like I'm here now. And so I look on a sea of white women and full disclosure, like I see myself as a college student. I see myself as a, a well-meaning 18 year old, 19 year old white woman who was just like, I'll change the world. And you know, I love kids and um, I wanna do something good. And my version of good is so is so was so wrapped up in white supremacy in itself anyway and so I see these women and I'm like this this is what I tell myself when I feel like I need to tell myself I'm doing something <laughs> like I see myself and I see like how that that that's the time to do it is ensure that teachers who are working with our youngest kids really don't consistently perpetuate racism in their in their moment-to-moment interactions with young children I mean, that's hard though, because like, you know, you're, yeah. you, you have to- <laughs> And one class is not going to do it. Exactly. That's really what it is. Because, you know, one of the things that I've been working on is I started the, the subcommittee within New York State TESOL to, to work, you know, and one of the things we're looking at is that the, the state um, certification requirements, right? It's a list of things. And some of them are pretty- not harmful it's like this many hours mm, you know whatever um and you know you have to like you have to take this test and like that's bad but the, the that's not a new that's not a t-salt problem like like they all have that problem but the first requirement on the list now i don't know if that means it's the most important but for whatever reason it's first is this big long list of like it says you you need to i'm paraphrasing but you need to understand the way in which, and then it lists a bunch of things affect, you know, learning for students, but it's just a bunch of identities. Mm. Um, it doesn't right. mention, ra- yeah, doesn't mention race, it doesn't mention race, but so part of me was like, should I make sure that they include race on this list or like still say the way race affects learning, like you're still, you know, in a deficit frame when you do that. 
So right. it's, it's not a race effect. It's a racism effect. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But they're not going to say that. They, what they say is that, you know, how does socioeconomic set, they always say socioeconomic status. I'm like, what, what do you mean by social? Oh, yeah, people love SES. What do you, you don't mean know what that means. I'm just like, what do you mean? I, I know what you mean by economic. That's a control variable. Yeah. But <laughs> and I know what you mean by economic. But what do you mean by socio? Like, what does that, mm -hmm. that socio is doing a lot of work. <laughs> like that first S. Right, right, and work that you don't understand. <laughs> right, it's like that That first S. Yeah, that's a big word. You know, um, it's just like social, because when I first, part of what got me into really looking at racism in education, aside from like my own experience, but again, I didn't really want to do this, you know. Um, I sound like a preacher, but it's like I was compelled to it. Uh, because, you know, I was drawn to it, I was called to the pulpit, um, because, like, I just kept looking at things, and it just kept showing up in my face, I was like, stop, like, you know, eventually, like, I just sort of got fed up, and I decided to just, you know, the only way out is through, so now I'm doing this forever, but uh, what, what happened was that I was looking at, like, a bunch of language stuff, and then, like, the person would be like, yeah, there's a racism problem here, and I'd be like, Mm. Um, and then this kept happening, like it just kept happening. Um, and I think that like one of the first experiences I had with this is that I was, when I started, when I got into my doctoral program, I started trying to join like various things online to just sort of be interested in what people were talking about. And because I'm not a K-12 teacher, I've always felt sort of um, outsider-y to like that sort of research. Like I read it, but I don't, I haven't done K-12 since I lived in Korea when I taught High school. That's how I um, feel about K twelve. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, but it's most of the thing. And so if and also if you're not a K twelve teacher, K twelve teachers will not listen to you, um, <laughs> or some of them. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, well, you don't, you don't know. You're not a teacher. I'm like, I do teach. You know, they're like, you're not a teacher. Um, and so I uh, was on various things, and one of the things that was on was like, there's a bunch of like Reddit forums for teachers, and there's just to see what people are saying and, and and they weren't saying like outwardly like racist stuff or whatever you know i'm not super concerned about that because most of those programs have moderators i mean most of those forums have moderators so you can't say stuff like that in there um but someone would usually pose a question and say how do i handle this problem um and the people would jump in and so someone would pose a question like my student isn't i can't connect with my student whatever this is a legitimate thing to ask Right, you know, I can't connect with my student, right? But then, like, the, the comments would be things like, "What's his SES? Is it is he, is he a low SES student?" And so, oh, oh, this is like the word. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. Deficit, the if you think that deficit thing, no. Yeah, it's no. like it's just it's it's exactly like that, and and it's just like, why? What look? Do you want to just say poor black? Like, why don't you just, because if you know, if you said that every time, you wouldn't feel comfortable saying, it. right? It's like, well, my right, poor, so what, but my like, poor black students can't do it. And I'm just like, you know. There's a reason you're stopping yourself and you're like editing your own language. And if you can just take a sec and think about that. Yeah. Right. It, it's, it's, it's interesting. And so that, that's one of the like, things and then I just happened to some of you know all these things are by chance because I had a class a, a language teaching class my program is not about language teaching but one of the disciplines we had to take a like survey course in was language teaching and now because I have my master's in that I was like I got this 
Um, so I really tried to dive into the literature and they talk about like translanguaging and like really busting down barriers. And I didn't really get it at first, but like I started to really get into it. And then I still kept, I went back to my master's program and just talked to them about what I learned. And they kept being like, not everyone in the program, but some of the people in the program just kept being uncomfortable. It's like, what is the problem? <laughs> like, this is cool. I learned this stuff. What is the problem? Um, and, you know, that sort of weird tension and resistance, you know, was like, that's what became the research. Because when I think about early childhood education, like, you know, I pretty much only think, only thing I see, let's say go looking for it, but like the only thing I see that's pop, you know, popularized, um, and, and pro, you know, propagated around everywhere is all about like social emotional learning. Gotta gotta teach gotta teach them how to socialize and have emotions, um, which is, I mean, I just feel like that's the way SEL is framed. Um, <laughs> right, and SEL as its whole like as social emotional learning curriculum, without understanding of like systemic issues and racism is not. It's actually doing again more harm than good. It's like yeah, we can tell feel it. I, that also feeds into like mindfulness stuff. I don't know if you see that out here. I know yeah. I don't people who do mindfulness stuff like mindfulness is chill, love it, get, you know, meditating is good. But <laughs> the idea of being able to like uh, teaching kids to just like be present and feel their feelings and, you know, that's not going to cut it. That's not it whenever they're dealing with like big stuff when they're dealing with racism in that moment, when they're dealing with like actual oppression from these systems, it's not going to be like, well, he knows how to, share though like that's not that's not enough and without that additional thing sel curriculum is really terrible <laughs> in my mind the social emotional learning be, again not in 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 concept but in application um is really just a way to blame the problem on the kids you know or anybody because it's, it's applied to other people too but like you know it's just a way to blame the problem on the students because it's just like, well, you clearly didn't social emotional enough to 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 deal with what's happening. You're not you. social emotionaling. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah, just what yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and like, I think you know, when when schools like we have a social emotional learning curriculum, and they're just like, what did you have before? Um, but Wait, like, I mean, that should just be inherent within the stuff that you do. I think, I mean, I think social emotional learning is obviously important, but I think it's more about like not doing harm to young kids. Like the way that I think it, the way I approach it, the way I feel like it should be, and I don't know, but it should be how teachers are not shaming and guilting and problematizing certain emotions from certain groups of kids. Because I mean, that's putting blame on teachers instead of kids. Well, that's the thing is that like in order to like social real social emotional learning is for the teachers and schools to stop harming the students socially and emotionally. But in order for that to be the case, they would have to admit that they're doing that. <laughs> and how do you get that to happen? Right. You know, I mean, you could bring in new teachers who admit that the other teachers have been doing it. But like the people who have been there, like you're not going to get something there's some i mean i don't want to say nobody there's people who have really you know tried to because there's people who have taken my classes and stuff and i get the impression like my class has not been what changed them they you don't come to my class unless you're already interested in that sort of thing but you still had to take a journey to get there and then part of my research is like what in their what in their life has made it so they were 
not just interested, but sort of prepared to take a class where they really had to examine this stuff about themselves and their work. Um, because I'm curious about that. It's not going to be like generalizable. It's only going to be like a small scale, a few people in depth interview sort of situation. Uh, generalizable. I know, I know. <laughs> but like, yeah. I just, I'm trying to find five or six people from my students who um, have different backstories so that maybe different white people can see themselves in these people. Yeah. You know, to be like, oh, I'm kind of like that one. Um, you know, because like, I think that the people who've taken my class have been different. And, you know, I, I, I want people, because there are people who aren't super, int they're interested in, they say they're interested in anti-racism, right? They say they're interested in, in decolonizing, they say SEL, they're interested in this, this, and this. And I'm not noticing this with the like, um, the anti-racism committee I've started within TESOL. And I get these bumps in membership every time something happens, like a bunch of people joined today because of the anti-Asian shooting last week, right? And I mean, it was advertised, like if you want to actually work on these issues in our field, you can join this, we're doing stuff, we have ongoing projects, right? So people messaged me to join and I added them to the list, right? So look, they're not gonna do anything if they don't join. So I, it's better that they do than that they don't. But, you know, the ones who are not really steeped in it, they're not saying anything, but you know what? It's still better that they are there seeing what people are saying than that they're not. Um, because I, although I'm still a little bit, you know, gentler than I tend to be in, the, in that ongoing chat discussion, uh, I'm still not really pulling punches on the discussions I'm having. So, you know, I think that it's, you know, hopefully that it, it can really get people out of their like zone on, on these sort of things. Mm -hmm. it reminds me to push them to have a discussion tonight. Are you writing a list right now? <laughs> like, no, I um, look, I'm looking at my do. thing. Yeah. Uh, um, there is that, that moment of like, well, why now? And I mean, I appreciate you saying, obviously, like folks need to get engaged. And so it's better to be a part of that than not. And I, I feel like in some cases uh, that folks might not be ready to be the ones speaking on things. And so like being an observer might just be helpful and acknowledging that that's a part of it. Um, but yeah, that nugget of like, why now? Why did you, how did you get here? What happened? And how here are you based on why <laughs> you came here? Well, that's 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 actually one of the things I ask after my first, and then the class that you will take soon. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I ask people after the first week is to go back through their life and think about their experience with whiteness, right? And I want people not, don't, I tell people don't read anything about race and whiteness that week. Don't be like, well, here's what, nope, just literally right. just think about yourself that week. Because I think a lot of, every time I give this class, the class, I don't restrict it to white people. It's first of all, it's difficult to do that on the internet without sounding a certain way. Um, sure. second, second of all, <laughs> like, you know, sometimes there are people who want to learn about whiteness who aren't white and that's fine. They just have a different experience. Um, and sometimes that's good. And look, look, they're choosing to be in the class. I'm not forcing them. So they don't have to. Um, but like sometimes it's good for the white people in the class to be like, oh, 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 I can't just figure some shit out. Um, but the point is the, you know, every time I give this class and I now say this every time I give my presentation, which is 
similar to the class, except shorter, obviously. Um, I asked the white people to tell me, like, when did you figure out that you were white? And how did that affect you? And so on and so forth. Oh, but then, like, the question is actually, when did you figure out which race you were categorized as? For the white people, it's white. For other people, it's other things. And mm -hmm. the people of color, the racialized people, they're always like, well, when I was in third grade, this person said this thing to me. Um, it's not always super early, sometimes, depending on where they grew up, the, the experience of being other takes longer. Um, that's just unique. To, like, that's, it's not like they knew by the time they were five, right? Um, but they know when. <laughs> like, they, they know that yeah. at some point they were told. They didn't quite get it, but they knew they were different um, and that people had opinions about that. Um, and then the white people are like, yeah, you know, I didn't really kind of realize that I was white until that's just saying. Right. And like right this moment. <laughs> yeah. And you know, they just like they 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 are everyone people that's why the whole color evasiveness thing is silly because like obviously everyone has noticed different skin tones, right? Um, so to pretend you don't notice that is silly. You can right. very you start noticing different skin tones. I think at like six months old, you can you can do that. You know, you I can do. already you already start like putting people in boxes at six month old. So I do wonder what he's noticed since he's mostly only seen us. Um, but uh, that's going to be interesting, right? There's going to be research on that. I can't wait to talk to you about this over the years. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, he he doesn't he doesn't say anything yet. You know, he, he's his, he's, it's mostly mama, dad, dad, dog. Um, the top three. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he does recognize airplane as a word. We say airplane, he looks in the sky. Um, or helicopter. We live, you know, we live in on a high building. Right, you see those things. Right, yeah. So um, I'm just, we say airplane, he goes. <sighs> um, and... You know, and then he says "baba" for ball. So that's, that's basically that's basically the extent of things. Um, and but he's able to, he, you know, he recognizes sounds. He he can't quite say more than those things, but you know, he's got he's got like he's got like five words. You know. Yeah, but he's picking up a lot more than. No, his recognition you know. is much is much better than his replication. I would say. Yeah. But his um, he 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 gets a lot of stuff, and I'm more interested in his recognition than I am. Like at some point, he's going to figure out how to make sounds with his mouth. Like that's not right. I mean, that's just like mouth development, yeah, physical, right. fine motor skills. Who cares? Like he's yeah. got. It. <laughs> He's got it in his head, but right. he's still, he's getting all these messages already. You yeah. know, it's still like his he whole knows, mind. He knows no. Like oh, when we say yeah. no, he will look at us. He doesn't always stop. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, mm. but then he'll look at us and be like, I know you don't want me to do this. I might do it anyway. Yeah, I'm gonna just test the limits on this. And That's gonna get even worse like by age two. Yeah. What, then what he'll start saying no back. Yeah. The testing of limits thing. I didn't, it starts so much earlier than I expected. They are way smarter than people know. <laughs> they are like, because, they know a lot more of what's going on. And this yeah. is like on all sense of the word, you know, like they know, they know, like they know social groups a lot earlier than we think. They know, <laughs> they have an understanding of more words than they're able to say. They're sneaky, really. The, um, 
you know, he'll turn to me and smile and do exactly what we don't want him to do. And they started when he was like six months old. I'm like, what are you doing? What, how do you know that we don't want you to do that? Uh, and why, why do you know that that's hilarious? Um. <laughs> yeah, why is this so funny to you? Because <laughs> like, that's the other thing. Like at six month olds, like they don't, they don't really understand. I don't have like the cognitive understanding of who they are and that someone is an other. They don't have like self other differentiation at that point really. Mm-hmm. But like, there is something about a six month old who will just love to do something that gets a reaction out of you, right? Yeah. He, um, yeah. And he, you know, he likes to see himself in the selfie camera. So, you oh, know, yeah. so, but the, the, you know, but anyway, so like, the, the, I, 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 I just wonder, like, you know, eventually he's going to be in a, in a school setting. And, and, uh, and I think about that and, you know, that's time from now, you know, and because we are still, you know, it depends, we'll see, but we're still more likely to have someone come help us than, than put him in at first, just because it's just like, there's, I don't know, we just, you know, he'll get more attention that way, I guess. Um, and, you know, there's still going to come a time when he's in, you know, more of a school setting eventually. And I'm just, you know, I really don't know what it's gonna be like. Like, I've, I've, I'm, I'm much more nervous at the beginning when he can't quite articulate all of his emotions yet, right. you know, because that doesn't mean nothing can happen to him when he's older. Most of the stuff that happened to me happened when I was older and I just didn't say stuff that I didn't know that I should. But uh, when he doesn't understand, like he, under- he feels but won't fully grapple with things like that's when I'm really concerned because um, we're not gonna he's not gonna figure we're not gonna figure it no one's gonna figure it out unless there's like a serious serious problem (laughs) right yeah there's and a lot of damp now I'm like I'm not helping here I'm not here to help (laughs) a lot of damage can be done at that point right like there's a lot of a lot of harm and a lot of trauma that can be inflicted on young children at that point especially when they're they're cognizant of it and they feel the effects of it but they might not have the words for it you know and I mean I think you will provide words you know as as parents you two will provide words for that and provide those open conversations but there's just a lot of that like subtle stuff I would imagine yeah Um, but it's not but I do say like there's a lot of harm can be inflicted obviously but it's not a, a dooming damning situation right there's a lot of um, conversations that could be happening over time, even earlier, maybe than you had them, that even well, can look back. Yeah, because we think about like the eighties, you know, the, the research and, and and what people understood, but mostly getting from you know people they knew and stuff like that. Now, there's the whole thing of like researchers are mostly just talking to themselves in a little circle, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and then they then they're like, why is no one listening to us? Just like you know why no one's listening to us. There's like the joke of like no one will even read this. Ha ha oh no. But then we don't do anything (laughs) to actually ameliorate that problem. Right. Because like part, you know, I I I I don't understand sometimes why um we know what the saddest thing about that whole situation for me was that like not only did CAT Sol desk reject my article, right? And now they're coming crawling back to me, by the way. Um because they, they have a special issue about these sort of things. And they're like, hey, man, you want to join to apply to the issue? And I'm like, OK. The thing is, had they done that before I had already applied, I would have said no. But I had already applied. So I was like, yeah, I did. 
but because I had found out about it. Um, interesting. But anyway, so, but then BCT will publish it. And part of the reason I was happy with it is because VJ Ramjitan, who you've probably seen on my feed and all that, have told me that they, you know, they're open access and they do a lot of really useful stuff. And they're mostly run by the University of British Columbia, which has a lot of people in the like language field. You know, they do a lot of interesting stuff there. And so I, uh, I got it published there and the article being downloaded, it was the most downloaded of their articles last year. And it was like 1200 people. That's not that many people. <laughs> and and that was like the I'm number one. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, but like for but for like this sort of thing, like you know, um and yeah you know that that shouldn't be like i understand now downloaded and clicked on is a whole thing right because you can open that article and not download it and whatever so it's probably more than that people read it and, and, and you know it's been cited a few times but like the 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 way that like your stats on what is like researcher.com or whatever the stuff it's just like i wrote like one article and i and i went yeah, I, I, know, I, wrote, I wrote like one article on the thing, well, I wrote two, but like, it's really like, it's not, there's not, you know, no one pays attention to what researchers say. Like, literally nobody, aside from the committees that pay attention to these things. And, you know, like students pay attention because we have to. Uh, but like, you know, how to, the, the, the field is not public facing and right. you know we get snobby about it and we say well we don't want to be like a tv commentator we want to be like the news and i'm like i get that you don't want to be to where your ideas are flattened into nonsense but like you have to be able to say things to people who aren't these people <laughs> right. like that that, that is a valuable skill speech of right absolutely because otherwise what are you doing really Right. And, I mean, and, and there's a difference between, yeah, I want my article to be picked up by a news source. Like, no, absolutely not. Do I want that? I, I don't want, I don't want somebody else to distill what I'm saying, but there is the space for them. Like, okay, get your stuff into, into the public and have, have a conversation about it. And I feel like what I've, what I've always struggled with is like, well, I'm one study. I don't want to tell anyone in real life what I found because what I found is not the end all be all of, of what's actually occurring. We need multiple people to figure out what's actually real. But then I'm like, uh, there's literally nothing real. Research is not real. That's totally a mechanistic way of looking at research anyway. And then I go back to this like, well, so then I should just publish whatever I have and tell everybody like off the thousand caveats of what I think I know and how actually we all know nothing and I should just pack it in, right? <laughs> like it's just the spiral that I go down of like wanting to be pub more public facing about it, but also needing to caveat 30,000 times that if I say, hey, it might not be helpful to minimize a child's emotions all the time, but what do I know? You know, that's like, I don't wanna come out here saying like, here's what we know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, because like I, I, I can see, cause I've been thinking about this stuff and, and reading about it. And like, it's really easy to see how the, the impulse to do things like that comes up because sometimes I'm just like, I know he's okay. He is fine. And I oh, want yeah, to, yeah. you know, like, like he, li he's literally <laughs> fine. 
He's literally fine. Well, see, and I have all these caveats of that is that is okay too. So there's a, again the whole level of caveats on my caveats, but you know, I'm just like it's I'm just like if every feeling he has, you're like your chill is fine, everything's good for the rest of his life. Like that's not okay. Well, right? Yeah, because <laughs> but but like I can see how easy it is to take something that like you do know that the like like you don't want to react very strongly when actually nothing happened, um, but then you take that into everything else um and it's 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 really easy to see how what is you know smart or maybe smart's the wrong word but like the right thing to do in terms of like he he's just surprised that he fell onto his butt he's not actually in pain he has a diaper on uh, well, like, when I'm talking about you're okay, that has nothing to do with physical. Like a kid falls down and you're like, you're fine. That's fine. It's when a child is like following you around the room for half an hour crying and going like this as though they want to be picked up. And your response as a parent or a teacher is you're fine. You're fine. Stop crying. You're cool. You're fine. They're clearly not fine. It's not helping them like learn any words about emotions. But I mean, all of that said, if you take some of the findings in my article, my one, you know, recent article about this, like, it's easily, it's easily bullshit. Like, I don't, like, one research study is, like, meaningless. I mean, it starts a conversation because we could talk all day about, like, your experiences with your son and, you know, and it should be more sending it, you know, sending it out to have these conversations, which is what, you know, I think, I think I do at conferences or whatever, like a lot of our ECE conferences are much more practitioner based. You actually talk to people doing this, but it's like on one, on, on one hand, it's like one study. I don't even want people to read it. I only want researchers to read it. So over time we figure something out, but absolutely not. Then that makes my life even more useless that it's like researchers reading it. I mean, that's the thing with, I mean, TESOL gets that way too, right? Um, yeah. The TESOL conference, which starts this week, um, is, but even like the state one is ultimately the vast majority of them are like, you know, public school, K-12, ESL, ENL, whatever the acronym is, teachers. And they are not going to your presentation um, if, because you go to that conference and I understand that it's online these days, but like generally speaking, because in 2019 I presented and I also volunteered, so I was there all day, oh, the three days. And um, the, the people go and the first day there were no, pre there was like a plenary, a plenary, but it was mostly like there were field trips. We like went to watch a school and how they did language teaching. And I was like, because I was a volunteer, I was like the chaperone, which was funny. Um, <laughs> but mostly I had to get people back on the bus. Uh, and so that was interesting. But what was particularly interesting about it was like on the bus back at the end of the day, people were talking and all they were talking about was how many credits they would get from going to all the, the like presentations. Yeah. You know, life. <laughs> yeah. Well, in in New York, I think it's CTLE, but like right, it's again different yeah, states. But it's also it's not just the state; it's also like like it's CTL language, like you know. Um, right, right. Different certifications. Uh, right. So, um, because Alyssa gets CEUs for social work, so mm -hmm. um, so like all their interest was was the CTLEs, and you know, I I don't have the data on this, and I hate 
framing things in terms of data, but people sometimes like to pay attention to things like that. Um, but like, I don't have any answer for like the people who take my class and therefore go on to try to do center whiteness in certain ways, they are fully voluntary, right? They want to do this and I'm giving them tools to attempt it. And then there's what I do in my day job, which we don't need to talk too much about, but the point is everyone at that who takes the trainings that I only barely design, but that I help shepherd are fully non-voluntary. It's part of their work day, right? Um, which that doesn't mean all trainings are in the work day are bad. Um, it's just the point is like, I see how much less interested they are. Like they're interested in the sense that it is relevant to their job. But they're not super interested in just being there, um, even on the computer. They're at home and they don't right. want to be there. And uh, for a variety of some legit, some not legit reasons, probably. Right. right. <laughs> and then there's that middle ground, which is like conferences where no one is forcing you to go to that conference. Right. I mean, again, in a normal time, but even online, because, you know, go to the conference, you're still doing it on the computer. And like, so if there's a conference, you each session you have a choice because there's usually several at a time. Mm -hmm. So you're getting an incentive to go to the conference and to go to each presentation. But like you are, you also have to choose to go. So the conferences I feel like are a middle ground in terms of voluntariness, right? Like you're not being there's forced. self-selection. Right, you, yeah. you know, you're not being forced to go. And a lot of the time they're not in like a place you wanna be, especially like a state conference. You're just, just in a hotel. So like, <laughs> some, some people go hard to these conferences. And I always found that interesting because when I went to AERA, I didn't know anyone. Uh, I knew the people in my program and we like met on the first night, um, but look, I don't know, white people, but they like, it was Toronto, it was early April, it was not warm and they insisted on sitting outside. And so I was just freezing. <laughs> I was just like, what are you, why are we outside? <laughs> and you know, it was one of those like, out, now we all know this, it was an outdoor restaurant with one of those heaters. It was long before all this. But it was one of the, it was basically- but Toronto what, had it on. <laughs> right. But, but like, so I'm like sitting in front of the heater, just cold. Um, and anyway, so that was the only time. And I, I didn't want, I was, I was a first year doctoral student. I was the only first year one who went. I went for good reason, because I was like, I don't have a, a, a dissertation subject. I had no book contract. I just was just interested in some stuff and right like somebody inspire me <laughs> right and that's what happened actually um but I was not beholden yeah. to anything um so that was good and I went to just what I wanted and but I still didn't like do anything I couldn't I I, I didn't have the temerity to ask you but like hey so what are you doing after this it's only six o'clock what am I going to do the rest of the night I'm just in Toronto by myself <laughs> so I just like went back to my hotel and then I just went to a restaurant and like yeah. sat there for three hours um did you go to like a cheesecake factory I feel like nah, that's it like was, the thing there's always it, a cheesecake it was like a, it was like a it was a, I don't know Canadian version of that it was like a it was like a bar restaurant and I just sort of sat there and watched like 
it was the, the the tournament, the basketball tournament was still on. So I just like watched, you know, it was like the end of the March Madness. So I was just like watching. Not so bad. Yeah. Um, I feel like conferences have like two speeds. You're either there and it's awkward and you're there alone and you're like, okay, I'll go to my session or I'll do what I need to do and then just scurry away and hide and not even want to go. This is like my anxiety talking, not even want to go to like the hotel bar that I know other folks from the conference are going to be at because then they'll see that I'm alone <laughs> like this used to be like grad school me when I was much more uncomfortable just existing as a person but then there's the other side of conferences where it's like all your friends from grad school which like you know I don't know if you do that now or you will at some point or maybe not but I don't <laughs> like, know I don't know like about then you go out until 4 a.m and then you miss the whole conference <laughs> yeah I, I mean what I want is to you know, hang out with the people I've sort of worked with. The problem is that like the people that I've worked, like people I've connected with are everywhere. So I have to wait until there's a big, I had to be like an AERA or a, mm-hmm. a TESOL or something like that to, to really have a chance to meet with people that I know from around the country and around the world. And I don't want to go. So <laughs> <laughs> wait, like ever or like in the next during well, right now? No, no, forget about this. Like I'm talking about in the future is that like I don't like TESOL as an organization, so I don't want to yeah. go. Um, I don't want to give them all that money because the problem is that like so I the last time I went to TESOL, I presented. This is before I really did any research, this is before I was in the doctoral program. This is four years ago. I saw the Facebook things recently. It was literally like four years ago this week because it's this week now. So it was this week, four years ago. And I was in Seattle and, and I, I hadn't been to Seattle in many years. So it was nice to go. Um, I was jet lagged the whole time. And um, <laughs> so that was interesting. Drank a lot of coffee and I just like, just acid reflux the whole time. But it was, anyway, <laughs> it was just not, you know, that was, you know, how do you stay in it? But like, anyway, the point is like every, there's only, two and a half main days of that conference like I got there late late Monday night and then you register on Tuesday and there's a plenary Tuesday night Wednesday and Thursday is all all the sessions and then Friday there's like a couple sessions in the morning and there's like committees I had no committee so it was Wednesday and Thursday because I came all the way out here for what's really two days um and on the Wednesday I went to a bunch of sessions and I'm just like almost every single one of these sessions is just how to fix people Mm -hmm. you know um, and I, I didn't like it. Um, and so like, I don't want to give them thousands of dollars. It doesn't cost thousands to attend, but you have to get there. Right. Um, right. All the hotels and stuff. Part of Just the reason. to sit in like education as a deficit perspective land for days and days on end for thousands of dollars. And part of the problem, part of the reason, the only reason I went to ARAs is in Toronto. It's not that far, you know, it was like, Toronto it's like a 50 minute flight. So it just wasn't, yeah. it wasn't that far. So I went, um, but like, you know, in the future, like what AERA was supposed to be in, like, obviously all the, everything was, you know, online and all that, but I'm just saying like before all that stuff, the plan for this year is AERA is going to be in like Orlando. And I'm just, I was thinking about it and I was thinking about like applying. And if I, like the only reason I would go is if I got in to present. Right. Um, yeah you know, pandemic aside. And like, I was thinking to myself, like, I, I fucking, I fucking hate Orlando. Like, what a terrible place. Like why? Like no, people just, think Orlando's it. Uh, and uh, It's the worst, it's the worst place. I mean, I'm sure that the people who grew up there 
have an authentic experience, but most of us know it's just like the, only, the last time I went to Orlando, I went to Disney World because my aunt, for some inexplicable reason, had her 30th anniversary in Disney World. Um, I love my aunt. It was just weird because they're not like from Florida. Um, so like the whole family went there. Anyway, it's like a family reunion. The part of the reunion was nice, but the fact that we were in Orlando was not nice. Um, and so we're there and every time, like I didn't like bring a car with me. So like, you know, you have to take a taxi to get anywhere because you're not in the city, you're out in like Disney area. Right. Um, and like, they know you have no choice. There's no sidewalk. So like every taxi is like a million fucking dollars. <laughs> and that's what it's it would like have, not even worth it. Right. That's what it, now the only thing that could have been okay about being Orlando for a conference is there's so many giant hotels that you might have been able to have everyone in one hotel and you wouldn't have to go anywhere besides the hotel. That's true. That's because, true. Because a lot of the, the places like where the city is cool, like you 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 their hotels all over the place. And you got to go places right. and that's cool but then you're more around right because when i was in toronto like the first day i went to four sessions and that's that's about as many as my brain can handle in one day Ooh, yeah. uh, um and then the next day i went to two and then the last day i went to one because i was just running, <laughs> the running. tapering <laughs> yeah. um and then on the second day is when I had the encounter that changed a lot for me because that's when I was getting interested in whiteness and language, well, racism and language. I hadn't really turned the lever to whiteness yet. Um, and then I had that conversation that I've mentioned to you before about like, and I've mentioned it many times in this podcast, people are like, oh my God, this story again. But about, um, <laughs> you know, the, the teacher, the K-12 teacher who told me I wasn't a teacher um, because, and then, you know, saying the teachers work hard and therefore that, that I don't know, anyway. Um, but it was while I was at AERA and, mm. Um, after that, I was sort of shaken up a little bit, not because I was scared of her, because she's trash, but like, <laughs> because um, I was just like, oh, is that the general teaching populace? Will people listen to me? But then I had, I found some good connections with somebody there, you know, who sort of was like, you know, there are people who are willing to engage and people who are not willing to engage. And it's pretty easy to figure it out early on in the conversation. So if the person seems like they're willing to genuinely engage in good faith, you can choose to engage in a conversation with them. But if they just want to stamp their feet, then move on. Right. Um, and I've learned that, like I don't, like there was a conversation on Facebook yesterday, which I shouldn't do, but, um, and someone posted something about intersectionality and how they came to understand it differently. And you can debate that or whatever, that, that part was fine. And someone showed up to say, actually, and I'm like, uh-oh. Uh, and, and they're like, the first person to talk about intersectionality was Marx. And I'm just like, literally, no. No. <laughs> I was like, literally, no. Um, <laughs> uh, and he goes on this long rant. And I said, and I jumped in. I'm like, I don't argue with people on Facebook because I don't know. I don't know people on Facebook, period. I don't know people on Facebook, I don't know. Yeah, I avoid it. No way. Um, but I jumped in, I said, what we are not going to do is just take an argument from a Black woman and give it to a white European. Yeah, like <laughs> just a general rule. Let's just stop fucking doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he goes on this thing about like, no, but actually you should read it and read the commentary. And, and like everyone was just like, like someone gave him a legitimate argument was just like, what you seem to be saying is something about a certain type of materialism where these two things intersect. But like the way it's being used in the post 
is literally the way that Crenshaw means it. And no, right. no one came up with it before her because she's the one who came up with it. Because so, that's the citation. Like, yeah. it's, it's like, that's when you learned about it. It was when Crenshaw you Crenshaw 89. Or is it <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can't remember if it was 88 or 89. I think it's 89. Uh, but uh-huh. anyway, so like, uh, yeah. so anyway, um, you know, trying to engage in this nonsense. And, but like, this is the thing that that's one of the, another problem with academia is that like things being in, um, I don't know, the literature give them such weight compared to mm-hmm. other things that they can't be taken out sometimes. And like, um, I'm not saying this to say everything Mark said was wrong or anything like that. It's more that more has been added since he said it than me saying that what he said was wrong. But uh, like, you know, when you think about what is in the literature, like so much of what's in the literature is harmful that like, Sometimes I don't even want to be in the literature. I don't even want to talk. I don't want to be in conversation with literature sometimes. I don't even want to talk to the literature sometimes. Like I just, I just want the literature to be over there because the literature so often is not lived experiences. And when the lived experiences are actually in the literature, it's usually being extracted for someone with more power, um, like by someone with more power from people with less power. So right. I don't even want to be in that conversation. their own don't even want to be in that conversation and but like literally no one's gonna listen to me if I don't in, in, engage in that conversation you know that's there's a sad part of me that knows yep. that I, I started this degree because I knew that people weren't going to take me seriously but I didn't have it or didn't start it but you know what I'm saying um you know mm-hmm. like you, you you're not getting you can't slap a master's on your like book cover you know <laughs> Yeah. You, you can include it <laughs> yeah you know you can include it in the like bio section like you can definitely write books with whatever degree or no degree but you can't put it on the cover <laughs> right for it to have for you to have those letters after your name and people pick it up and say oh this person with those letters after their name you gotta get the letters but how many hoops do you have to go jump through and how much of yourself do you have to lose Some- Sometimes I hear because like sometimes people tell me that they are in their degree for an astronomical amount of years and I have no I'm not criticizing those people at all. I know only that I do not have the ability to keep with it that long. Nope. <laughs> I just... I'm feeling that right now, kind of, <laughs> even though I'm post degree, it's been a lot of similar stuff and I'm like, I'm done I'm done now though, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought I have done I... it. Every time I go back to school, and, and, and I would hope this is the last time, um, but I said that last time, uh, <laughs> is, is that I get in and I got all this energy and I'm like, yeah, school. Uh, and then like, like a year passes and I'm just like, what the fuck is this? Because it's what? like demoralized. The whole thing takes away everything about you that you were energizing about in the first place. <laughs> you know? and, and I'm just like, you know, I understand why in my first semester we had to learn a lot of like basic doctoral shit. Like one can quibble with the fact that that is basic doctoral shit, but we should be informed of what is expected of doctoral people in the first, it's literally the first semester, fine, fine. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the only class we took, fine. Um, But if these motherfuckers want to keep being like, and here's how you write a literature review. And I'm just like, you motherfucker, I am not, I am not 
So this semester I basically refused in my last class. And I just am like, uh, I'm gonna write this article and I'm gonna submit it. And the literature's in there. So, <laughs> so. Yeah. You'll see it, you'll see it. It's, it's in there. <laughs> in there. Um, and, you know, the, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, I'm, 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 I may be edging up to the line of how defiant I can be and still keep my, this is the last class. So if I, if I succeed at this, I, I get my 4.0 for the degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I don't know what the situation is, like dissertations and stuff, but um, I mean, class wise. And like, if I fuck it up because I just refuse to do what they want, that would be stupid. <laughs> and then you're just ABD forever. <laughs> just yeah, like, yeah. You can't put ABD on a book either. <laughs> yeah. But like um, the yeah, uh, and then yeah, how how defiant do you continue to be? Because well, I mean, I, but like I've said this, I don't know if I said but you this should to you, be, but also, but yeah. I said this, and I don't know if I said to you, but I've said it in general that like my attempt here, and I keep talking about it, but I also think talking about it is helpful, is like to do the like Shawshank thing, like I'm trying to like you know to to you know at the end of the Shawshank Redemption. He spent like the, throughout that movie, he he shows up every ten years for a parole meeting, and he's the most shuck and jive Negro, right? And they don't let him out, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, oh yes, I, you know, I feel real bad, and and you know, I I'm really sorry for all these things that I done, and then they just deny his parole here, and then finally after Tim Robbins breaks out and he's stuck in there, um, and he's just resigned to being in there forever he's he says some honest shit he's like yeah it was bad that I did that and I wish that I could take it back but I can't and whatever and then they're like okay which it's not how parole works no. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's not how prison works um but magic words yeah but uh it is interesting because I'm sort of like I spent my entire life you know trying to to shock and jive unfortunately not literally but like trying to be accepted by by what academia but also just education wanted and um I can do it but it's it's painful you know to have Mm -hmm. to just sort of extract things from yourself and so I'm I'm done doing it and I only have to last <laughs> like one more year. <laughs> you know. Do the bare minimum of the bullshit, like yeah. just the bare minimum of the fly- the flaming hoops. And... Right. But but like I'm trying but to. But a lot more. That's you. But I but but if I succeed at this, and I don't know what success means. I just, I mean the book is already being published, so I guess I succeeded already. Um, is is you know make it so if there are people in my situation whether it's because of neurodivergence or racism or whatever it is, like they, they feel like they have the ability and the space to try to work against, you know, the structures that they're inside of. Because I don't, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying to include that in the book. There's only so much that I can include of myself in the book, although it's threaded throughout. But like, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to, um, think of how it'll be received because I know that like the small corner of academia that likes what I do really likes what I write. I don't know how the general public will feel. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I think you'd have a lot of a lot of folks who are ready to hear what you're saying. And a lot of folks are really are not, but I mean, 
that's just the case when you say anything that's outside of the status quo even in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Dr. King, uh, mm. we veered off of the topic, but I wanted, oh, that's what always happens. That um, seems right. You know, to, to sort of circle back to tie up the, the conversation on early childhood though, I mean, like I think what the reason we talk about a lot of things is because early childhood education affects a lot of things. You know, that is really, that's, that's like the, the roots of the tree. You know, the, 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 the kids who come out of there, which is all of kids, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's very difficult not to be affected by you know the way early childhood education is 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 pursued, and you know placed onto people. So it's important that we really think not just about the way people are teaching, which is obviously potentially problematic, but the way that the whole concept is conceptualized. I think is what needs to be shifted. And if you had a final thought on how that can be done. Which is a large question uh, <laughs> of shifting the entire conceptualization of early childhood education. That's what. That's what. Yeah, yeah it's a small <laughs> question. Oh, okay, yeah, casual. Uh, I mean, I think it's got to be like multi-pronged, like anything else. I mean, if we're gonna shift the uh, how we do ECE, it's got to come on an individual level, on a systemic level, you know, on a director administrative level all the way up to federal funding level like and so it's not a obviously not a one fits one size fits all kind of approach it's like we have to get our teachers to stop perpetuating like unchecked white supremacy because I think left to its own devices ECE in a lot of what is done in the measures we use to assess school readiness or whatever in the measures we use to assess child development in the curriculum, in the discipline, left to its own devices, it's unchecked white supremacy and children will inherently learn that in those systems anyway, if we're not on an individual level, figuring out how to, how to get like teacher buy-in to do the self-work and do like, do the self-work on what they're doing, do the curriculum work, dismantle the practices and policies in their own literal spaces they hold. But then it's all the way up the list, right? It's all the way up the line. <laughs> I mean, how do you even, because like, I can it, it, it seems, although it's difficult, it doesn't seem confusing to me how you can make these changes in teacher education, right? You can bring in different things. Teacher, like, I, I know it's hard, but like, it's not confusing as to how it can be done for new teachers. Right, and it's not, it's not as complicated because there's something... Well, for ECE, it even kind of is, but we have these students and I have these students in my classroom. My colleagues have these students in their classroom. And so we are consistently really trying, right, to dismantle some of this shit and to um, to challenge our students to, to challenge what they think they know about education, to unlearn everything that they have been told about that it's a good thing to do Columbus Day with their four-year-olds and stuff like that. Um, but it takes way longer than even a teacher prep program would be. It takes longer for, for teachers to get um, to get ready to do it. Uh, but even then, there. this is another systemic thing too. And I froze and I don't know if you can hear me, so I'm just going to keep talking. But <laughs> I can't hear you. I just didn't say anything. So, oh, okay, cool. 
No, I've been talking this whole time. I've been listening the whole time. I just didn't say anything. Oh, I thought you said you didn't say anything. I was like, I couldn't tell because it was giving me all these things. Okay, sorry. No, I didn't say um, anything. Okay. Uh, but the, the other thing, which is then a whole issue is I have students who are sitting in my class who I'm trying to prepare to work with toddlers, let's say. And I'm expecting them to take out student loans to get a four-year degree to work a job that you can't make ends meet with the salary. And so we have this idea of like NACI, National Association for the Education of Young Children, will talk about professionalizing the field, power of the profession. And it's a movement to professionalize these teachers. We but, have this in language teaching also. Right? Okay, okay. But there's no, like, you can't, you can't say, all right, now every teacher is going to need a bachelor's degree to work with toddlers. Okay, that'd be cool because I would love to have them and for four years get an education for how to do this and do this well because it takes a long time to to learn to dismantle some of this shit. But um, cool, I'm preparing on my students for poverty level wages. Like we can't say you got to get the bachelor's until the compensation then exists for those jobs. And so we can't start doing this without those types of like systemic things and sure I could go in and do a couple one-off like PD with with teachers and you know and I do and I will and all of that but it just it it does feel insurmountable but it also isn't as complicated as we like to say it is (laughs) I mean I remember when I was on a panel um years ago for after my master's and my master's program was trying they were trying um, to really talk about like the field because the field is the problem right and although they can't say that because then why would anyone sign up for the program which is also why the program is closing now um, is that like so one of the things they were doing was they were putting up like a, one of those things where they had like a slideshow in the background um, behind the panel before the thing and they had people's you know salaries that anonymously submitted right um for graduates of the program and you know they're, they're also trying to attract new people to the program right you know so um they said you know salaries up to and they had one person above me and like I was just looking at it I'm just like it's true that it's up to uh-huh. an, an okay amount <laughs> but there's like two of us <laughs> and it's up to <laughs> up to keywords you know yeah. um and how to lie with statistics <laughs> i mean it wasn't incorrect it was but sure yeah you can paint to. a really pretty picture with some with some but the thing is it wasn't even that pretty <laughs> it's not even a pretty picture it wasn't yeah. even like there was one person making 200 grand and you could just say up to 200 grand it was like you know one person had uh and then you know, they asked, she was, it was a panel with employers and, and graduates, right? Two different panels. And like, they literally asked her, so how much do you pay people at your job? She said this much. And it's like, what if they have a master's degree? And she said this much, but like one more dollar an hour. Uh-huh. Um, so that's how much the master's was worth. But she wasn't being an asshole. She was being honest. Like, like this know. is what we can do here, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know, like that we, we can lobby for funding and we should, you know, for both adult education and early child, Every, everything that's not, like K-12 is bad, is, is, is underfunded enough. But to me, the problem with K-12 isn't that it's underfunded, is that it's weirdly funded. 
Right. Where the funding goes, the fact that that public school is tied to property taxes, like how the funding gets there, like that in itself. Yeah. Yeah. At least ECE has different funding issues. The the winding road of funding for K-12 is more of the issue that like there's plenty of money in K-12. It's just not going to the right people. Yeah, it's um, not being funneled. Right? But I mean, like, in ECE too, it's like we have different funding depending on what, depending on what kind of auspice that you're in. Like Head Start gets different funding from potentially like private nonprofit than pro- for-profit places, which for-profit childcare absolutely not. But <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of the places around me are for-profit childcare. Um, and it's are there like the chain ones? Like- there's a couple of chain ones. There's some small ones that are just like a person in her house. I'm like, okay, you know. You know, I don't necessarily begrudge like a lady running a business in her house. Yeah, right, right, right. That's different than like the big, like the targets <laughs> of childcare, right? Yeah, you got we got our bright horizons. That's um, that was the one on my mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's right um, across the street. You know, we looked at it, and you know, it was it's a whole situation over there. Um, yeah. So, but you know, anyway, so. Uh, I don't know what to say. It's sort of like uh, the this is a whole field that I don't know as much about as a, a scholar or researcher, but as a parent, it's something that I'm paying more attention to now. And it's it's got the same problems as everything else I look at. Let's just put it that way. Ah, what a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, well, it's both uncomfortable because of that, but it's comforting in the sense that at least I know what I'm getting into when I deal with it. But uh, yeah, so there's that. All right, Dr. King, thank you for joining me in this conversation. Um, I appreciate your energy on the topic and I hope you enjoy the conversation yourself. Absolutely, Any, I would love to do this anytime. I really appreciate having this conversation with you. All right.